Hi there, I'm Sheena and this is the Lesbian Review Podcast. This podcast is a spin-off of the popular review site thelesbianreview.com where we review the best books with leading lesbians, bi or queer women. This season is focusing on getting hot and heavy by talking about sex in lesfic. We will be covering a range of topics and chatting to author guests. Today I'm joined by author and Bold Strokes Books publisher, Radcliffe. Radcliffe, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Today, I specifically want to talk to you about the concept of sex in lesbian fiction, because I think it's such an interesting and polarizing topic. From a personal point of view, sex in lesbian has been a very important part of my journey as from coming out and learning about my own sexuality and that kind of thing. And I think a lot of people have similar experiences because we're just not exposed to sex in any kind of educational environment. Okay. But today specifically, I want to talk to you about the concept of biological children for two females in lesbian fiction. So you did this. The first time I read about this was in your Midnight Hunters series when the two werewolves could have biological kids. And it blew my mind. (laughs) Just to speak to the Midnight Hunters series, obviously it's a paranormal series, which lets you go places that you can't necessarily go in contemporary fiction or any other kind of realistic fiction, which is part of the reason that I wanted to write the series to begin with. I've always been a sci-fi paranormal fan, been reading it since I was a kid, but I hadn't really started writing it until I'd written probably 25 romances, contemporary romantic intrigue, even historical. And then I thought, well, you know, I'd really like to try this. And I thought about, well, why do I want to try it? And for me, writing this particular series, one of my intentions was to be able to write sex without boundaries without some of the restrictions and some of the biases and prejudices or fears or misunderstandings that we might have because we're socialized to think a certain way about sex. And I thought if I can create a society that is not people, but that are other beings who operate under different sexual mores, then I could write sex that was pretty much anything I wanted. So that was, that was one of the reasons that I wanted to write this. And what I did was I tried to create a world where the wares who we're talking about today, and there are different kinds of wares, there are wares who are wolves and wares who are cats, are not human beings who have something wrong with them. They're not infected with anything. They're not ill. They're not human beings or who are somehow perverted. They are beings who have evolved sort of in parallel with humans. They are different than most of the population. So they are thinking beings, but they're also driven by instinct, very much the way wolves are driven by their pack instincts. So that's where I wanted to start. So in my world, these creatures, these beings, are actually matrilineal. They are, the wear trait is passed only through female wares. Male wares can impregnate female wares and female wares can impregnate female wares. So the question is, how can that happen? 
I also think that your paranormals and your science fiction ought to be as close to something believable as you can make it, but obviously it's not fact. But being a doc, I started thinking about, well, how could that happen? And some things have to merge, right? I mean, you've got to get something from one to the other in some fashion. And the way I conceived of it, in people, in humans, for real, there are DNA in our mitochondria. And we have mitochondria in all our cells, not just in our eggs and our sperm, but we have them everywhere. There are little bits of DNA. Nobody's quite sure what they do, but it's passed on through the X chromosome, which is female. So what I figured is that's where the wear traits are going to be so that I can get two females, both of whom have those little bits of DNA, and I can put them together. So that's, that's kind of how I show this in the work, how it could happen biologically if you, you know, smooth the edges a little bit. So that's the biology. Then you have to have the physical part. You're smiling. I can see that. Oh, I yes, love it. I love it. I got so excited. No, I got so excited when I read it because it sounded like the kind of thing that could happen because there was this kind of scientific sort of basis, if you like, you know. Yes. There is, actually. Well, the interesting thing, the fascinating thing to me, and where I got part of this idea for the biology, is that there's precedent for this in nature, too. And you can actually, like, look this up on the internet. Female hyenas are dominant. They have a matrilineal society. And female hyenas have elongated clitorises that extend outside the body. They're very phallic, quote unquote, in appearance. And the dominant female hyenas actually are shown submission by other female and male hyenas by actually nuzzling their genitals to show that they are submissive. So I thought, well, you know, there's no reason that I can't give my wares slightly larger equipment that they can use. So the, the, um, the physical aspects of how this works is that, again, biology, everybody knows, and I don't want to get super graphic, but we are talking about sex. Everybody knows that during sexual arousal, the clitoris gets larger, firmer in everybody. That's how it works. It's just biology. And what's also really interesting physically that we don't think about a lot is that there's more to the clitoris than just what we see. It actually has extensions that go down along the edges of the vagina so that there's a lot there. So all I did was make it a little more prominent so that when the two females have sex, their sex organs can get really close together and you get sort of what I call a lock, which again happens in nature. If you think about most of, most of the way animals, even us, generally procreate, is there some kind of lock? So that's what happens physically. I tried to make everything make total sense. The only thing that I really kind of created for this is what I call the victus, which is the essence, the fluid that is emitted during sex. And that carries hormones and it carries neurochemicals that fuse and create the mate bond. Because it was very important for me in, in creating this world to create bonded partners because that's what happens in nature with wolves. And I wanted to, I wanted to create a social structure very much like wolves in nature because that's how I wanted to show the power dynamics, which was also important to me, speaking about sex. Now that we're off of the biology, 
in talking about sexual hierarchy and power hierarchy, I wanted to really follow the wolf model, so I needed bonded pairs. So when they mate, their neurochemicals fuse and they actually have a biological connection. So that's kind of how it works. And it's still one of the coolest things about the, the the series. And I think a lot of people have kind of taken that, the model that this can happen, especially around weirs, into their own fiction, mm-hmm. which I think is just awesome. I mean, only sort of downside to being lesbian is you can't have kids that are biologically both of yours. You know, I mean, it, it's possible, but it's a lot of work. I mean, there are couples where you can harvest an egg from one and do an in vitro insemination and implant it in the other woman so that you have an egg from one, the genetics from one, and the biologic connection for the other. And people do that, but it's, it's tough because harvesting eggs is not easy. It's not like harvesting sperm. You have to go into the abdomen. You have to get them out of the ovaries. It's a surgical procedure and it's not easy and they have to be prepared uh, with hormones before so that they're ovulating and there's a lot of eggs. And then you've got to implant them. So it's expensive and it doesn't always work. It can be done and I I get it. I, I mean, I've known lesbian couples for decades now who have children in various ways and this is one way to do it. And I get that everybody wants to have some connection, even if it's not, I mean, obviously biology is not the determinant of family, but for some people that's important. Mm. So it can be done, but it's, it's not easy. So what sort of sparked this idea for you? Well, other than wanting to write, I, I really wanted to write sex and power mm. and this let me do that. I also, in the series, the other overarching theme is the concept of otherness and what that means and what that means for a group of people. And the parallels are really obvious to the queer community. In the very first book, in the very first chapter, what sets the whole thing is that the primary character, who is the where alpha, her father brought their, their world out into the open. It was called the Exodus in that up until that time, all of these non-human beings were hidden because they were being hunted or persecuted and destroyed over the centuries. So they were hiding for survival and they decided they weren't gonna hide anymore. So this is a coming out. So I think the analogy is really clear and I wanted to show what happens when you are different and other people fear you and don't understand you. And so there's a lot of dealing with the greater world and oppression and prejudice. And so that was the other, the other reason that I constructed the series the way I have, and it's still kind of going on. You've got a a new book coming out in September. Yes. Enchanted Hunt. It's actually, it's a novella. I wrote, it's really a companion piece to Rogue Hunt, which came out last year. The two together Um, Each has a standalone romance within it, and the two together kind of tell an overarching story, although you can read them completely separately as well. So the two of them together make up a full-length novel, but I didn't really have time to fit it into my schedule, and I really wanted to revisit this world, and a lot of people have been asking me, and I thought this was a really good way to do it. I could do a pretty long, they're each 32,000 words, so it's a pretty long novella. So each has a romance 
um, an action focus, and they're both self-contained, but they go together. So Rogue Hunt and Enchanted Hunt kind of are one big, long story. Okay. And who are the main characters in Enchanted Hunt? Who's the couple? Uh, Trent Moran, who is a Timberwolf warrior. That's the main pack. That's the one that's featured with Sylvan Mir in all of the books up to this point. And Zora Constantine, who is the alpha of another pack. And the basic story, very briefly, which began in Rogue Hunt, is that someone or something is attacking the Snowcrest wares. And they're a smaller pack. They're not warlike. They're merchants, actually, and traders. They live up near Canada, taken, of course, from the history of fur trading. So they, they have soldiers, but they're not warriors, and they're getting the crap kicked out of them. So Zora, against you know her in, inherent desire to protect her pack, asks Sylvan Mir for help. So Sylvan sends her warriors to Zora's compound to train her soldiers. So in Enchanted Hunt, Trent is there to help train Zora's soldiers. And of course, they're attracted to one another, but they can't be attracted to one another because they're from different packs and Zora is the alpha. So there's the conflict in the relationship. Nice. So let's talk about uh, sex and lesbian in general. Do you, do you think it's important to have graphic sex in Lesvik? Well, okay. Graphic sex. Let's put that one. Let's put that one to the side for a second and talk about sex in general. Okay. Because um, everybody has their ideas about what's graphic and what's not, and I'm happy to talk about what mine is. Do I think sex in Lesvik is important? In general, absolutely. Totally. Completely 100%. Does that mean I think there needs to be sex in every work of lesbian fiction? Not necessarily. I think it depends on what you're writing. I think it depends on who you are as an author, what you're comfortable with. I will tell you that when I started writing lesbian fiction, which was in 1980, oh, I said that out loud, didn't I? Um, <laughs> there was not a lot of graphic sex, meaning sex on the page with body parts. Not just the, you know, they had sex, but sex with body parts, yeah. breasts and, you know, fucking, I can say that, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, graphic sex, meaning the act on the page was not that common in 1980, for sure. Certainly, there were works being published where lesbians were having sex, obviously, and romances in particular, but there were also other works where sex was a focus. There was BDSM becoming fairly prominent at that time with some of the essays coming out of San Francisco, for example, um, coming to power and uh, Pat, Pat Califia and those works. So there were, there were sex, but sex in lesbian fiction, particularly romance, which is my area, was pretty off the page. There would be a love story, and at the end, there would be a declaration of love and a commitment, and you would get sex off the page, but not on the page. Not often. There are exceptions, absolutely. But I really felt that as lesbians, as sexual beings, as people who were not roommates, who were not best friends, who were not just, you know, living together, we were couples and sex was part of our lives together. And I thought that we needed to show that in our fiction. So when I started writing lesbian fiction and lesbian romances predominantly, 
I wrote graphic sex, meaning there were breasts and body parts. And, you know, I tried to make it specific on the page and I thought that was really important. And I still do. And that's what I write. Certainly there are plenty of good works of lesbian fiction that don't have graphic sex. I think if you're writing non-love stories in particular, if you're writing a mystery with lesbian couples, you know, I mean, lesbian main characters and characters even who get together, it may not work sort of dynamically for them to have sex. They certainly can, and I think that works well too. So it really depends on how the author sets it up. Do I think it's important for our community? I think it is. I think that there are still lots and lots of people, lots more than we who are connected now, who know each other, who have groups on the internet, who meet at meetings, you know, who have live contact. We think this is the world, that's not the world. The world is much bigger and there are thousands of people who are still isolated, thousands of queers throughout the world who are isolated, who don't have role models, who don't have any validation. And I get emails all the time from people who read my books and say, this is the first one I've read. You think it's everywhere, but it's not. And you think that everyone has validation or even knows about sex. And that's not true either. So I think that our works need to be, need to be inclusive of our life, whatever that is, all the diversity of our life, our sexual diversity, our gender diversity, because it's important to the people who read it. So that, that's kind of how I come at my own work. I think you're 100% right. I mean, as big as the community feels, it's actually very, very tiny in the greater scheme it of is. how many yes. queer women there are out there. Like, yeah, it is. You were talking a little bit about erotic romance being relatively new in mm-hmm. in the sector. You want to expand on that a bit? Yeah, I, I think that there's sex in romance, and we talk about. And I'm just I'm I'm picking romance because that's where you're most likely to see the most sex, because you're talking about a physical and emotional story. Mm-hmm. I mean, the story is about the developing emotional, physical, psychological, spiritual connection, sexual connection that develops. So that's, the, that's where you're going to get the most sex, unless you're reading erotica. The subgenre, there are lots of subgenres of romance, right? Romantic intrigue, romantic adventure, romantic suspense, paranormal romance, and erotic romance, among many, many others, dozens, really. There's pirate romance and Viking romance and all kinds of romances. These are genres, I'm not kidding. But erotic romance per se, as a recognizable form, really wasn't recognized until the late 90s, early 2000s as a genre. Things weren't called erotic romances and they weren't written as erotic romances. I mean, the difference between a romance with sex and an erotic romance is that in erotic romances, the journey of the characters and in every romance, basically, there's a character journey. The journey is predicated on their sexual awakening or their sexual journey. If you took the sex out, the book would fall apart. Mm. So that's kind of what distinguishes it from a romance with sex. If you took the sex out of a romance, it might be missing some elements, but the romantic journey would still be there. The characters would still meet and they'd still fall in love and they'd still get together and, and even without the sex. But 
in an erotic romance, the sex is part of what propels the story and what changes the main characters and what helps them reach a point where they can make their emotional connection. So it's, it's a fine distinction until you read one and then you realize if you took all the sex out, you wouldn't have a book. So, I mean, I think that's really interesting and I think that's a result of the sexual awakening of our community, mm. of our lives. Um, just as we're starting to see now more gender diversity and we, you know, more and more and more sexual diversity and different ways of women being together, queers being together in relationship. So I think that our fiction parallels our social evolution. It informs it and it represents it. It's a two-way street. It's kind of a symbiotic relationship. And I think that's always been the case. Thank you for spending your time with TLR. We rely on the support of listeners, patrons, and advertisers. So please click on our links to buy. Check out the show notes to find our Patreon link and support our advertisers. You are listening to the Lesbian Review Podcast. We bring you the best lesbian books, movies, and music reviews on thelesbianreview.com. Why did it take so long then for us to get to the point where we were actually acknowledging that erotic romance is a thing? Well, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a sociologist, that's for sure. But I have a pretty good historical appreciation of because I lived through it, how our fiction emerged. And uh, you're probably aware of this, maybe some listeners aren't aware of this, but you know, lesbian fiction wasn't a thing until probably the late 1960s, early 1970s. There were the pulps of the 50s and 60s, which were critical, in, I think, in awakening the desire for people to write lesbian fiction the work of Ann Bannon and, and so many others where for the first time people could read women together. That's the fifties and sixties. So that's not very long ago in the history of fiction and even romance fiction, which was, you know, really first begun in the 1800s, like in the 1700s, early 1800s, when the romance fiction form became recognized. So it's pretty new. And I think that early on, a lot of our lesbian fiction was very much informed by the 1970s and 1980s, the women's movement, the movement away from the patriarchy and male-dominated culture. And women were just beginning to really take control of their own sexuality. We're, We're just beginning to say, this is what I want. This is what I feel. This is who I am. And it began to emerge in our work. And it's a work in progress. I think as we, as women socially throughout the world, and certainly in our work, begin to define our own sexuality as having it, instead of having it informed by others or defined by others or limited by others, we see that evolution in our work. And I think that's why it took that long to really just begin to be expressed in what we write. And remember, books are an interesting form of communication in that there's an audience at the end of what we write. So as authors, we have to think about, will somebody read this book? 
if what I'm writing is so foreign to my audience, will I be able to reach the audience? It's not just what the author wants to say. It's getting the reader at the other end to be able to comfortably listen to what you're saying. And this is something that I think is really, well, it's probably unique to all art form. I mean, basically an artist creates what they feel or what they see or what they want to express. And then the audience looks at it and likes it or doesn't like it. As an author, I would like people to read my books. So I try to frame my message in a way that I think people, many people, not everybody, I know everybody's not going to like what I write, but I try to frame the message in a form that will reach the audience and have some impact. And so I think that as an author, as myself, as an author who's been writing for a really long time, my work changes as I change. The message is basically always the same, but I think that maybe the audience just wasn't in a place to hear it yet. I mean, we as women, as lesbians, maybe we just weren't at a place where we were quite ready to embrace all of these concepts. That's the world. That's the changing world that we live in. So again, I think it's just, we go together step by step socially along with our fiction. It's interesting. You have to know when you can push the boundaries and when you yeah. need to not quite go so far. But yeah. you, you yeah, speak as, totally. as a publisher and an author in this regard, though, so you have a kind of a unique perspective on that. So you're looking at the sales figures and going, ooh, this is not quite ready, for, you know, the world's not right here yet. Yeah. You know, I think that it can't all be about whether a book sells or not. But I think, realistically, if you're going to be a publisher, you need to be realistic. Because you're taking on the responsibility of representing an author of helping them present their message. And it, it's your responsibility to have a dialogue and say, you know, this is a great idea, but you know, maybe this element won't work so well, or maybe if it was presented in a different way. I mean, that's, I think that if you don't wanna work in that system, you probably shouldn't be published. I mean, I think that that's just the reality of what publishing means. And, my job, and I've been doing it now for over 15 years, is to look at the marketplace mm -hmm. and to see what people are reading and what people are saying about what they're reading. And I don't think it's just a question of only publish what people want, because I think that you have to pay attention to the trends. You have to pay attention to the world. I mean, that's, you know, in the last four years, publishing in general, not our, just our publishing, but publishing throughout the world has come under tremendous fire because of the lack of diversity not only in the publishing structure, but within what is being published. And I think that that's absolutely right. And we're all talking about diversity and how do we be inclusive and how do we be authentic? And that's changing what we publish. And I think that's a really good thing. Um, it's also something you have to pay attention to because it doesn't help anybody to publish a book that nobody reads. Mm. It just doesn't. It doesn't help the author. It doesn't help get the message out. So I think that that's a challenge for publishing in today's world is to recognize the messages that are important and figure out how to get the message out in a way that readers embrace. 
when you first started bringing out erotic romances, you were writing ones that were targeted specifically. This is erotic. I don't remember if you did specifically, but I remember Bella at the time did Bella in the Dark or something like that. And that was like the erotic sort of... Yeah. How did people receive it? Are they still looking for those things? Is there is there a bigger market now? Like, where are we at? I think it goes up and down. I mean, it was really interesting. I thought that, you know, Bella was pretty clever when they did Bella After Dark because it's B-A-D, bad. God, that, was, that was pretty clever. I think it was intentional. Um, I don't know that for sure. My first work that I would specifically call an erotic romance was Shadowland. Um, and I mean, that it's a pretty obvious one. It's a BDSM romance. And I, at the time, it was, and when I wrote it, it was well before it was actually published. Um, I wrote it during a time when the queer community, the lesbian community in particular, was very interested in exploring and dialoguing about power dynamics. And so that inspired me to write a romance around those issues. And I didn't think of it as an erotic romance. I just thought of it as a romance with between people in the BDSM world who express themselves very specifically through power dynamics. And that's what I wanted to write about. When I published it, I got a lot of negative feedback. I mean, really, I had published by then, in print, I had probably at that point, maybe eight books, maybe a little more. So I was fairly well established. People knew who I was. I had been writing a lot. I wrote X-Files fan fiction in the late 1990s, which is how I began writing for community rather than just writing for myself and putting it away in a drawer. So I was fairly well known and people thought they knew what I wrote. And Shadowland was different. Not only was it different, it was offensive to some people. And I heard about it. So there was a lot of negative feedback. I mean, literally, I had people say, how could you write this? You've, you know, set back lesbian fiction for years. <laughs> and, you know, I felt badly about that. I'm not sorry that I wrote it, that's for sure. And I'm not sorry that I published it. And I got many things on the other end of the spectrum. I got people saying, wow, you know, this opened up a whole new world for myself and my partner. And I think that that's, that's what happens whenever you put work out there. Some people, it resonates for them, they connect to it, and for others, it doesn't. This one obviously is more polarizing because it is a lot different. It's at one end of the sexual spectrum. That was about the beginning when people started looking for more sex in fiction, I think. And we started signing authors who were writing erotic romance specifically. And it's always been not as big a seller as a contemporary romance, but it's always had a good following. Um, and there are some authors who have written really specific sex for a long time and are super popular. Megan O'Brien, I don't mind saying, is enormously popular and her work is highly graphic. And I would say that a lot of it is erotic romance and multiple other authors that we have. And I, you know, I think that it's still popular and things go up and down. Contemporary romance and romantic intrigue is always the, the biggest sellers that has the biggest audience. But erotic romance is popular, remains popular, and we still publish it. And I'm always interested. And we're starting to see now 
a lot more diversity in what we're seeing in relationships and sex in the books, in the, in the submissions that we're getting. So when you got that big reaction from Shadowland, were you like, oh, we obviously need more of this stuff. Let me go forth and make more. Or were you like, whoa, I'm never doing that again. Cause I know you've done a whole lot of stuff since then. Um, it didn't really affect the way I write. I mean, it's, I'm pretty sensitive to criticism and it always bothers me when people don't like what I write, but I also know that there are going to be people who don't like what I write. Just like I don't love every single book that comes down the pike. And I don't think I've really changed the way I present sex in my books, although I haven't written specifically, I haven't written a BDSM romance or a BDSM work. Certainly, if you look at the Midnight Hunters, the power dynamic there is very reminiscent to some extent, without the, without the, the power dynamic is there. So I would say dominance and submission is there, mm. but not the bondage discipline aspects. Mm. I have written the, probably the closest, and it was intentional, is Returning Tides, which was, which is part of the Promisetown Tales, which I specifically wrote as an erotic romance. I meant it to be an erotic romance in the sense that the journey was sexual. So, and, and I was playing with that theme, but it's not particularly my thing. I've written lots of erotica and I've, I've written, you know, dozens of erotic short stories and, but for, for as, as a novel, not, mostly not. Graphic sex, yes. I mean, all my books have graphic sex. None of my sex is off page and all of it is pretty specific. Okay. Is there anything else you specifically want to cover that we haven't spoken about? The thing that interests me about sex and certainly sex in our fiction. And I know that you're speaking, you know, that we're kind of like narrowing in on, lesbi on lesbic and lesbian, how sex between women is presented. But I think that our, my audience, our audience is primarily lesbian or mm -hmm. primarily women, but our world is getting a lot bigger. And we're really trying to inject more diversity into our works. I am, I mean, it, I don't know if you're familiar with my Justice series, but I've been writing characters who are on a spectrum for 20 years. I mean, I have, you know, basically um, characters who are trans. I have characters who are non-binary. Not that I use those terms, because I actually didn't even think about those terms at the time, but I knew that I, was, I wanted to explore different ways of women in relationships expressing themselves sexually. So it's been there for a long time, but now we're a lot more specific about it, and we're starting to see stories with trans characters um, and different couplings. And what I'm hopeful for is that our audience will be open to these changes, that it's not going to be just the experience that they've had or the people that they know, but that our fiction can be a vehicle for the changing kind of face of our community in terms of gender and sexuality. So, and, and I think that that's, that we're on a learning curve. We're on a new place yeah. in, our, in our world and in our fiction. In my River series, I have a trans character. I don't know if you're familiar with my River series, but I was very interested 
and am very interested in what's happening in the world and especially with so many of the trans issues. And I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll write a trans character. And I decided that Blake would be the, the son of my main character. And I really had no idea how Blake would be received by my audience. I mean, I could have gone the other way and I could have, I could have done, you know, a male to female trans teen, but I wanted to do it this way. And Blake has been really popular. His story has been really popular. Writing his relationship with Margie has been really fun for me. When I was at the GCLS last year, somebody said, can they have their own story? And I think that's fabulous. I mean, I am so happy that, that I was totally unexpected. And I was a little worried because, you know, this is not my lived experience, mm. but I get emails from trans readers who say, thank you so much, this is so important, and that's what our work is supposed to do. We are supposed to reach the people who feel they are invisible so that they can see themselves in the works that we write. That's why we do this. When people say, oh, you know, do we still need queer publishers, and do we still need, you know, queer fiction, and do we still need lesbian stories? And the answer is, hell yeah, we do. And we need the stories of all our people. So, you know, the fact that our readers, my readers, who have been reading me for a really long time and, and think they know exactly what I'm going to give them, I give them something new and they say, yeah, this is okay. For me, that's incredibly rewarding. So that's, that's where I hope we're going to go, that we can, through our work, we can open more doors. I love that. And that's, that's exactly where we all need to be focusing because it isn't just a narrow little space anymore no on a personal note i was 19 and i was really struggling to come out and i discovered your work you and karen cormaker were so influential in my ability to come to terms with my own sexuality that i just want to personally say thank you oh well thank you thank you for reading me thanks for all you do for helping us to, you know, be more visible and reach more people. I think this is really an exciting, exciting way to do it. And I really appreciate the opportunity. It's, it means a lot to me to be able to talk about what I do, especially these days when every single event that we had planned this year so far has been canceled. So this is great. Are you guys planning on doing more um, digital? Yeah, the virtual festivals. We are. We're hoping to do at least two more this year. Um, and we're going to start an entire sort of ongoing series of interviews with our authors and podcasts and we're developing our own YouTube um, channel so that people can find them up there because obviously there's no good time to reach everybody. It was really tough. So we're, we're really looking into more kind of virtual connections. Nice. And we should be starting that very soon. That'll be great. Thank you. It was great. I mean, I, I can't take much credit for it. Um, Sandy Lowe and Carson Tate kind of like did all the brainstorming and all the legwork and got it, got it together. Where can people find you online if they want to connect with you? In terms of us individually, the easiest way to do it is to go to our website, which is www.boldstrokesbooks.com. And every author has a page and every author's contact info is on that page, along with all the works that they've done. So pretty much everything about us is in one place. Um, we have a free newsletter 
which there's no obligation to sign up to it, but everything that we're doing comes out in the newsletter as well as our daily bargains where we discount books and we do our new releases. So that's a good way to keep up with all of us. If there are any author events, it'll be out in the newsletter. So again, on the website, you can just put your email in and get it and it's free. We try not to bother you too much. If somebody has not read your books before, and they're interested in something with a little bit of spicy sex in it. What do you recommend? One of the first ones that, that I wrote that people often still talk about is Passion's Bright Fury. There's a lot of spicy sex in that one, and it's a medical romance, so that tends to be fairly popular. So I would say that one. Everybody loves Faded Love. That is my most popular book after Above All Honor, which it has a lot of sex in it, too. In fact, that's got sex in the first chapter. So I would say probably Above All Honor, which is a romantic intrigue, um, has a lot of sex. Passion's Bright Fury, those are some of the earlier ones that have a lot of sex. I was writing, I was serializing them at the time, which probably most people don't even remember, but I was publishing them chapter by chapter on the internet and then putting them together for publication. And I would like take the first draft so that the full book would be different. But because I was serializing them, there was lots of sex because I was doing, you know, pretty, pretty kind of like segment, segment, segment and putting sex in. So there's lots of sex in the honor series for sure. And you can also pick up the Midnight Hunter series. There are six books and the seventh one is coming out in September. Yes. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was great. Thanks so much. This has been the Lesbian Review Podcast. Find more information on our guests in the show notes, as well as links to what we spoke about on this episode. And if you enjoyed this podcast and want to see us creating more awesome content, then consider becoming a patron. Not only does this mean that we can keep doing what we do, but you will get exclusive content that doesn't appear anywhere else. You can find out all about it on patreon.com slash thelesbianreview. The link is in the show notes. That's all for this episode. Bye. <laughs>